0: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have a special guest. His name is Pedro Earp, and he is the chief marketing officer at beverage giant AB InBev. You know all of their products from Budweiser to Stellata. They're just giant. They do billions and billions of dollars in sales. And Pedro has this just fascinating career and resume he's run the venture capital group he was director of disruptive growth that was actually his title now he runs all of the advertisement and marketing for just an immense consumer product group it's really just an astonishing role and we talk about everything from how do you manage marketing during a pandemic lockdown what do you do when sports stops and what do you do when you have a product whose name includes the word Corona. It's really quite interesting, and if you're at all a person who is fascinated by branding, marketing, advertising, you will find this to be just a fascinating conversation. With no further ado, my conversation with AB InBev's chief marketing officer, Pedro Erp. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Pedro Erp. He is the chief marketing officer at AB InBev, one of the world's largest brewery with 170,000 employees in 50 countries with 260 breweries and 13,000 owned retail locations. Previously, Pedro was the former head of M&A and the former head of their venture capital fund. AB InBev has such August... Brands as Budweiser, Corona, Stella, Bex, Garden, Modella. the list goes on and on and on. Pedro Earp, welcome to Bloomberg.
1: Hi, Barry. Thanks for having me.
0: So your resume is really quite confounding and fascinating. You were head of M&A at a very large company at a very young age. Tell us about that.
1: So I joined the company uh, back at the, the Brazilian side of the company. You know, uh, ABI is a combination of a Brazilian company, a Belgium company, and of Bush in the U.S., Grupo Modelo in, in Mexico. So it truly really became, a, you know, a global organization. But I started on the Brazilian side, uh, you know, of the company uh, in the year of 2000 as a trainee. And then as soon as I kind of finished my training program, they invited me to join the you know the marketing uh the the MA department. And at the time the brewery was growing a lot, you know, was do was starting to do some some international expansion. So I thought it was, you know, a very good opportunity to to join the M&A department. And then two years later, you know, my, my boss ended up going to uh, to an operation. We have this about going to headquarters and and also going to operations. And then I had the opportunity to have the division. So in a very, very exciting time because we're expanding Latin America, a lot of things to do at the time.
0: So you've had a couple of really interesting titles. One was Chief Disruptive Officer. Another was Head of the Venture Capital Unit. Tell us about some of these jobs. Why would a giant beer brewery and distributor have a Venture Capital Unit?
1: Yeah, so we, uh, you know, we started ac- trying to accelerate our our innovation efforts from 2006, 2007 on, you know, until then the company relied a lot in, in inorganic growth and, and M&A. Uh, and and then at some point in time, you know, we, we became a, a very big organization. So M&A started being less, less accretive. And we really turn our focus into organic growth and innovation, being a, a big part of it. But we, uh, you know, we we didn't go as fast as we wish uh, we we could go. You know, sometimes when we have a big organization and, and especially an organization that is growing a lot, it's core business. Uh, it's very hard, you know, to divert the, the, some of the focus and some of the of the people and some of the money, you know, to really focus on innovation. So you know, our CEO. And the board in 2015, they decided to create, you know, a separate unit to be fully focused on on innovation and, and the future. So this is kind of when when we started the, the ZX Ventures group, which is the, the kind of the innovation arm of ABI. And then when I was talking to you know to Carlos Brito, which is our our CEO, about the, the organization, he said, "Look, there's only one thing that." that I would like to ask, you. you know, you define the mandate and the areas that a guy's going to explore. But, you know, I really like your title to be, uh, you know, what the group to, to be called disruptive growth group. And then I said, look, I know if you put it disruptive growth, I mean, actually, at the beginning, he didn't even say growth. He said disruptive group. And I said, people are just going to think we're going to get in rooms, you know, kick the chairs, you know, and, <laughs> and say some silly stuff. And so I convinced him on disruptive growth, but in a way, you know, he kind of asked me to to have that title to the group because he wanted to make sure that uh, the message to the organization is that this group would be disrupted even within, right? We'll try to do some things that maybe was not the best thing for our core business, could cannibalize our core business, to so could create some, uh, you know, creative disruption from within. And that's why I had this kind of funny, funny title.
0: We're going to talk more about the VC fund a little later. It's now over a billion dollars. But let's talk about the elephant in the room. Obviously, everything has changed with coronavirus and the lockdown and the pandemic. I know I'm drinking a lot more than I was pre-lockdown. How has COVID-19 impacted your business? What has this done both for and restraining sales?
1: Yeah, it you know it, it it varies a little bit depending on the you know the country that that you are in. In general, you know it has been it has been tough for the business. So we had a tough you know second quarter uh, of the year. We have a lot of exposure to emerging markets where the own trade uh, you know bars and restaurants are a significant okay. part of the business. And because of lockdown, of course this this piece of the business was truly shut down. So it's been tough. For business, right, the business uh, was under pressure in the second quarter. We we have seen improvement since then, which I think is is good news. You know, we see a lot of markets reopening, uh, but you know, I think it was was a was a very tough but but a great learning uh, experience for us. You know, we had to really focus on people and focus on our on our consumer, and I think we we're gonna come out of this crisis, you know, much stronger than 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 we got in.
0: So, so your title is Chief Marketing Officer. How quickly can you change your marketing strategy or even your advertising in the midst of a lockdown? I know a lot of this stuff is done quarters in advance. How quick can you pivot once the lockdown starts?
1: Yeah, I mean, in our case, was was really fast for two reasons. You know, the first one, is that we have big operations in in China. You know, we have twenty uh, percent market share in China, and and, and roughly sixty percent of the total premium beer marketing in China. And we saw when it got started in in China. So we had very early on we had an indication of how it could look like in other in other places, and the seriousness of the of the crisis. You know, as soon as we saw things start in China. Two weeks later, we set up a global task force, uh, which allow us to react much faster. And and the second thing is that really, uh, I think the you know the culture of organize the, the organizations, a culture of of ownership. You know, our employees really they they behave like owners and and they fight for the business like if it was their their own business. So it was you know during the during the crisis, were all hands on deck. You know everybody working twenty four seven to adjust the plans, change the plans. You know, scrap campaigns. You know, even I mean, we, uh, you know, internationally and globally, we own the Corona brand, right? So for especially for Corona, we had to make a to make a lot of changes. So you know, it was it was tough times, but again, you know, I think it was a an opportunity for growth and and the companies coming out uh, stronger.
0: So you mentioned uh, Corona earlier, the Corona, the beer. How do you have to pivot in the face of a pandemic that has the phrase Corona in the first half of it? What what sort of adjustments do you have to make? And is that the same in, in every country? How do the translations affect if people are superstitious about the beer? What what do you do in response to that?
1: Yeah, so the, I mean, the first thing, of course, that we paid a lot of attention, right, is through social listening, what people are talking about, and if they are making associations or not with, you know, with the beer. And mainly, you know, there was little noise of association with the beer, and the associations were mainly people, you know, making fun of, you know, things related to the beer and things like that. So we really didn't have, you know, quite an impact, but we thought given the, the times, you know, that we should be silent for a little while with the, with a beer brand, not not to create even more confusion. So we, uh, you know, we decided to be out for a little bit. We're coming back now, you know, with the Corona brand uh, all over the world communication. But on all the other brands, we adapted. And I think the trick here was to, uh, to stop thinking a little bit about selling beer because that was not at the forefront of people's priorities and see how consumers were changing, what were their immediate needs, and then what our brands had a role, you know, and how they could help, you know, people uh, during the during the pandemic. So just to, to mention to you some examples, you know, Michelobotra in the U.S. is our balanced lifestyle brand, right? It has like two grams of carbs, and it's for people that have an active lifestyle. And we, at the very start of the, of the crisis, we saw a lot of people starting to exercise at home. So we created the Michelobotra movement, which every single week, we had kind of home workout sessions that ended up with a happy hour and DJ like speed Ioki, for example, that we had. And it was a it was a great success. You know, Michelobotra during the time had more engagement in views than, than sports, you know, brands and, and, and fitness apparels and, and, and things like that. So, you know, that's kind of one example. Another example, it's in Brazil. We had a huge relationship with country music uh, singers and, and of course, because of the crisis, a lot of shows are canceled. You know, we use the fact that we had already these relationships and we had sponsorships and things like that. And we decided to do live streams uh, instead of having live concerts. And it was a massive, massive success, you know. So today... Today, out of the top 10 most watched videos on, on YouTube of all times, five of them are for some of the our live streams. You know, in Brazil, we had more than two and a half billion views, you know, on the live streams. Again, people were at home, locked in, they were bored, but they still wanted to kind of enjoy themselves. So, I mean, it was a period of really uh, uh, trying to understand how consumers were changing, trying to live aside a little bit, you know, the, the attempt to sell beer and to, you know, to grow the business in the short run. And it was more about understanding how, what people needed and how our brands could create you know, a meaningful relationship with them by providing what they needed the most.
0: So historically, sports has just been huge for marketing, all sorts of things, certainly beer. You guys were the lead sponsor of the World Cup. How do you adjust when so many sporting events are canceled in March, April, May? And then what do you do now suddenly between the NBA and the start of uh, the NFL and the end of the baseball season and we just finished the U.S. Open? How do you adjust to this sudden onslaught of, of games played in these you know, COVID bubbles?
1: yeah it's uh you know the the need for enjoyment and the passion for sports are still there, but again, people are having to enjoy it in different ways. So again, we've been obsessed about understanding you know how people are still trying to enjoy sports and see how we can help them so to to mention a couple of examples in some of our markets, we saw that people were, because they were not going to the stadiums anymore, you know the pre-game people had more time to enjoy you know, the games. So, for example, with some of our teams, you know, that we sponsor in a lot of countries, we start doing live stream of of the pregames in a lot of countries, you know, and we had a lot of people that used to go to the stadium, so they, they wouldn't watch, you know, any, any of the pregames. They started tuning in, and we had massive audiences, you know, uh, joining the live stream like one hour before the the match or half an hour before the match something that didn't, kind of an occasion that didn't exist before, right? So that, that was kind of one, one example. Another example, you know, you mentioned the NBA, and we, what, we, what we tried to do, we teamed up with, with Microsoft, uh, you know, in the U.S., and we are basically providing people the opportunity to watch the NBA games, right? We have a, we have a stand, you know, in the stadiums, you know, Microsoft mm-hmm. and ourselves, and we have spectators there, and they are basically in a, you know, in a virtual environment where they can not only see watch the game from different angles, you know, as if they were uh, watching it live, but they can also interact with other people that are on the on the stands. And people that are watching the game on TV, they can see the people on the stand. So again, this is kind of a new way for you to watch sports and 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 that's what we we've been trying to do you know to understand that the passion is there understanding that the, you know the behaviors might change but then how can we adapt to this behavioral changes
0: yeah the the nba seems to have done a better job having live appearing fans through those screens on the sides of the uh basketball court as opposed to just putting cutouts and and some other attempts have not been as creative. I, I, I've been watching the NBA playoffs and it almost feels like there are real fans in the seats.
1: Yeah, again, you know, I think the the physical interaction, you know, in the proximity uh, of people, it's something that, that of course, everybody misses, uh, right? And, and that's something that technology is trying to, to address. And I think it's getting better and better. So you know we see that the quality of the of the interactions that you're having through zoom or through you know microsoft teams and and other things is getting better but again i I'm sure people you know and time allows and hopefully we're gonna have more effective treatments and vaccines very soon. I'm sure people are gonna be very eager to physically uh, you know attend uh go to stadiums again
0: so so I'm curious how how does a partnership like that come about? Do you pick up the phone and and call? the head of marketing at Microsoft and say, Hey, I have a great idea how we can do something innovative at a at a basketball game. How how does a joint project like that actually happen?
1: Yeah, you know, it starts with the relationships, not only the relationships with the teams, but also the relationship with other sponsors, right? In a way right. In right. a way we are all we're all on the same boat you know, the leagues, the teams, the sponsors, and everybody. And during this time, you know, the collaboration increased dramatically. You know, we were in touch, again, all over the world in all types of sports, you know, not only with the teams and the leagues, but also other sponsors to see what are the things that we can, you know, do together in order to to make sure that we continue to, to provide our consumers with the experience they had before. You know, so from this collaboration, a lot of, you know, things like that, have happened during uh, COVID, you know, and and it's the the usual thing, you know, the, I think crises like this, you know, bring people together to try to figure out what to do, you know, and that, that's how these things came about.
0: So Pedro, let's stay with the world of sports. You guys have been giant advertisers on events like the Super Bowl. How do you quantify your return on that sort of investment? What are you looking at? How do you measure if something's a success or not? Tell us about the thought process there.
1: Over the years, I think we've been getting you know better and better and measuring, you know, kind of the returns of, of marketing activities. You know, we have we have an analytics center in India, you know, that kind of collects everything that we do and then the consumer response and try to quantify uh, the returns that we have. But some of these things, you know, there you have to take the bet. Uh, you know, again, Super Bowl is is like probably the biggest sporting event, you know, in the world, you know, every single year, the number of eyeballs that you have in there. And, and that's one of the few, you know, events that that you have on TV that people actually stop to watch, you know, the the commercials. So of course, I mean, we always trying to measure the return and things like that, but in a way, you know, there's a lot of, you know, belief uh, that something like that has a, a very high engagement with people and and, and the the reach that you get is it's um uh, you know it, it's very hard to get to get somewhere else. What we've been doing you know for the past years has been to be a little bit more intentional about about what kind of brands we advertise you know on Super Bowl. So in the past we'll just advertise you know kind of the biggest brands that we had. And again, these brands are the ones that probably are the most known brands. So I'm not sure the eyeballs, you know it's really what the brand, uh, needs. So we started to, for example, using more, uh, you know, premium brands like Stella on Super Bowl. We started using more, uh, you know, innovation, like Bud Light like Seltzer, you know, for Super Bowl. So we tried to be a bit more intentional on on how we how we go about it. But, you know, I think there is a fundamental belief that an event like that with the level of engagement, the number of people, it's something that, you know, we we should be doing.
0: I have to ask, what seems like a little bit of a wacky question, which is why on earth does a beer giant have a venture capital fund? What does AB InBev get out of this?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a good question there. You know what? When we started our venture capital fund, I met, you know, an entrepreneur that he had basically a, a home brewing business, but he was, uh, you know, a Marine before, and he, he used to work on intelligence. And he was explaining to me that one of the things, one of the challenges they face for, you know, big carriers is, you know, the the big carrier. They they were trying to to simulate what would be the the best way to sink, you know, a carrier, some sort of, you know, enemy was trying to do it. And and at the end, you know, the carrier is kind of prepared, you know, to, to fight another carrier or to fight airplanes or to fight you know, land to see missiles and things like that. And they came to the conclusion that probably the most effective way of dominating and, and destroying a carrier would be to have, you know, hundreds of pirate speedboats attacking the carrier at the same time because the carrier didn't have kind of defenses for that. And he was saying that's kind of, you know, a good analogy to what startups are kind of doing to big CPGs. You know, the big CPGs, they yeah. are usually set up for scale, and to kind of, you know, compete in big markets with other big CPGs. And now you have all these speed boats, very nimble, very fast, you know, focus on, on attacking niche markets. And they are kind of, you know, little by little dominated big space, you know, dominated by, by the big CPGs in the past. And the way, you know, the intelligence figured out on how to preempt, prevent, you know, an attack like that is actually to also have speed boats in the big carrier. You know, and deploy speedboats as they were being attacked. That then you could count on the backup and all the intelligence that you would have from the big carrier. But then you kind of, you know, have a more a more even fight. And that's a little bit what what we are kind of we are trying to do. You know, I think if our company really believes that with uh, the big number but limited number of brewmasses that we have, that we can create, you know, more beers and and better beer than the thousands and thousands and thousands of craft brewers and brewmasters that are all over the world today, I think they'll be naive, you know. So what we are trying to do is basically to join forces. You know, there are a lot of people out there that are passionate about beers and about beverages or about technologies that help beverages and beer. And then, you know, what, what we are trying to do is to provide a platform that they could be a much more successful, you know, in their attempts and, and, and kind of trying to do something that works for both you know, us and, and
0: for the startups. Huh. So asymmetrical warfare and big consumer product groups are like carriers. That, that, that's quite interesting. Let's talk a little bit about the technology that you're actually considering, looking at, thinking about how does technology help you track how effective your marketing is and what does it teach you about your customers?
1: You know, we uh, that there are kind of you know in terms of technology, there are two two big things. You know that that we are doing, of course, one is more on the martech side of things, right? Being able to to track your you know your spend, especially in digital, and measure ROI and optimize and understand consumers, segment your audiences, and do all all of that. I think that they you know a lot of people are trying to do. But the other thing that we are we are also doing. It's to have more direct relationship, you know, with our consumers to really uh, be able to measure, you know, full funnel, right, from people getting to know your brand all the way to making a final a final purchase. And we have businesses, for example, in, in, in Latin America now, in a lot of countries in Latin America that you can basically have your beer delivered, uh, you know, to your home and in 30 minutes, like you would have, you know, Amazon Prime uh, uh, in, the, in the US. So, you know, that's kind of, you know, a dual, dual approach. One approach is, you know, the technology in terms of, of marketing technology and how to, how to to measure and how to track things better. But the other one is how do you create technology, especially on e-commerce, where you have, you know, better data and better measurement by having a direct relationship with consumers.
0: Huh, quite interesting. Consumer preferences seem to change so rapidly in spirits and beer. I I mean, hard seltzer. I don't even know if this existed 10 years ago. And then suddenly, boom, it's everywhere. How do you use tech and big data to track what are the new trends that are bubbling up? How can you tell the difference between something that's a serious change in consumer habits or what is just a fad that's going to very rapidly go away?
1: Yeah, I, I think seeing the things that are picking up, you know, it's relatively uh, it's relatively easy, right? Today, with the granularity of data that you have, and with social listening and Google Trends and all of that, I think it's kind of you know easier to understand what's popping up and and what's going on. I think the real question is the one that you ask, right? What are the things that you should really uh, investigate and understand the drivers because they seem to be more. Uh, long-term, long-term things, and what are the fads? And I think you know, in our experience, there are two factors that have been, you know, that have been separating the fads from the from the things that are real. You know, one of them is how the, this new product is really aligned with long-term uh, trends, right? So, to to give you an example, uh, you know, in the U.S., for example, for the past few years, we had a lot of new flavors in you know, hard soda or, you know, not your father's root beer and things like that, that were, in terms of health and wellness, they, they were almost anti-trend, you know, because of the quantity of sugar and calories and 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 all that, you know. And now you have hard cells, so we actually provide the flavor, provides the variety, but it's pretty much aligned with, a you know, a very strong long-term trend in terms of health and wellness. You know, so that's kind of you know one indicator of the things that are more sustainable than 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 fat. And then the second one is is the kind of the consumer that you see adopting, you know, this new this new product. You know, whenever it's just you know now for consumer in the east and west coast, you know that it's kind of they they try everything and you know they you know everything new that they go there and try. And then it's it's hard. You know, to, to establish on whether there's something more sustainable, or it's, a, or it's you know, a fad. But when you see consumers that are more mainstream, you know, consumers, mass consumers, that I they start adopting, then you you have a hard, you have a, a huge indi- indicator that the trend is more is more sustainable. You know, so that that's kind of you know the, the two things that have been observing that make a difference.
0: One of the things I once heard you say that fascinated me was beer-created civilization.
1: Discuss. Yeah, it was actually not me. Those are the, those are the archaeologists and, you know, they, you know, a lot of scientific evidence about that. But the story is, you know, beer exists for more than 10,000 years. And you know, before before that period, uh, you know, humans were basically uh, you know uh, nomads, right? They will hunter, they will hunt, and they will gather, and they will move from place to place as the resources become more scarce. And then, and then, a lot of academics uh, were trying to explain why human beings settled in communities, you know, in first place. And uh, until the 1950s, you know, the main theory. Was that they start settling communities to to plant, grow, and store wheat? You know, to make bread, and and, and that's why they, you know, they start farming. But since the fifties, there is a lot of evidence that the most, you know, the, the most ancient grains that they are finding in this very early settlement was was barley. You know, was not was our wheat. And I don't know if you try to make a bread out of out of barley, but it kind of doesn't work out, you know. So, so apparently the apparently the first, you know, the grains that they found, it was barley and it was basically to, you know, to make beer, right? So again, you know, I think beer, you know, the beer that, that the role that beer has been playing, you know, in society for the last 10,000 years, it's really to bring people together and it's an interesting to see it you know, that there is some evidence that it's been doing that for more than 10,000 years.
0: Beer civilized people. I, I I like that. I like that concept. So let's talk about an old joke in advertising, which is half of advertising dollars are wasted. The problem is we don't know which half. So that raises the question, how do you measure the impact of things like brand and influence and commercials? How do you recognize what actually works and what doesn't? What what's the process like for that?
1: Yeah, I, I think I think that that phrase. I mean, of course, I mean it's not it's not perfect, but this phrase was very very true, probably ten fifteen years ago, where digital and digital marketing was not so prevalent, where you had basically a, you know mass communication, it's very hard for you to, you know, to relate the mass communication today. You know, in a lot of places, we have operations that you can link every single dollar that you spend on advertising. You know, for the people clicking on your advertising, being led to one of our e-commerce platforms, you know, purchasing the product and then coming back. So in a way, uh, you can calculate very well what uh, you know the consumer lifetime value is and how much money you, you spend to acquire you know that uh, that that customer. Right. So the things have become. Uh, again, you know, with the commerce and with technology, marketing technology uh, became much better. And and I think the other thing is, you know, today, uh, you know, b- back in the days, you would kind of spend the money, and then you you try to look back and use some econometric modeling and and marketing mix modeling to see whether that thing worked or not. Today, we are we are working much more in terms of you know you have a hypothesis. And you have, you know, some variations of creative lines and campaigns that you want to test. And then you put that in digital and then you keep running them and seeing on a daily basis what's working, what's not doing, A-B testing. And and putting money behind the ones that do work. You know, so I I really believe that productivity, you know, and the returns have improved substantially, you know, for the companies that are being able to, to deploy, you know, marketing technology analytics.
0: So digital certainly is helping. How do you how do you look at things like social? What what do you think of places like Facebook and Twitter? Is it a marketer's paradise because it's so specific and can get so granular, or do you run into the same issues that you run into advertising anywhere?
1: Yeah, it's you know this platforms. They they allow you to understand your audience and provide a message that it's much more adequate to the, to the audience that you are trying to reach. Right. So back again, back in the days, you know, you would have to do a kind of a TV campaign and the TV campaign is for everybody. So you, you would pick some, some passion points or some sponsorships and then you would, you would kind of blast that sponsorship to the, to the whole population through, through TV. You know, today what these platforms, they they allow you to do is to understand, you know, consumer segmentation, the interests of people, you know, and and how many of them are there and the engagement with one of the passion points. And then it allows you to, you know, to basically uh, communicate with them through passion points, right? So, for example, in Budweiser, you know, we have a lot of sponsorships, you know, we, we sponsor music, we sponsor sports. You know, we, we have kind of we sponsor urban culture, we sponsor arts, uh, you know, and a, and, a, and a bunch of other things. You know, back in the days, we'll kind of pick, you know, one passion point like football, for example, and you communicate through that platform and that sponsorship to the whole population. And what this platforms really allow you to do is to understand specific passion points and then what resonates with each consumer segment and be much more surgical about your messaging.
0: So, so you guys own three of my favorite beers. You own Stella, you own Whole Garden, you own Shock Top. When you're thinking about marketing a particular brand or a premium beer versus a sort of mainstream beer or a micro brew, is it all about just micro-targeting that specific passion to a group or is there a, a, a broader, more holistic Branding approach somewhere in the background.
1: No, there is a you know we we kind of you know we have kind of our our process you know on how to build the brands and the these brands they, they are at different stages in different markets. So there is a very you know specific approach to to give you like uh, you know uh, an example. Uh, Stella is of course at a at a much different stage than than Hugardin or or Top, right? Mm-hmm. And you know whenever whenever we start you know in a country with a new brand we we focus mainly on creating salience for that brand and and people getting to know that brand and creating points of difference uh you know to other beers so that we entice the curiosity of people to consume the beer you know as the brand grows, then we focus more on on relevance and meaning you know what what does this brand do for, you know, for our consumers and how we can create more of an emotional connection, you know, over time, right? So, so there is, you know, there is a different approach, of course, depending on the, on the size of the brand and at the stage that it is.
0: Huh. That's really interesting. You guys have been very active in the mergers and acquisition space. You seem to be adding products or at least pre-pandemic, you were adding products to your portfolio on a regular basis. When a new brand comes in, how do you go about marketing that? Do you, do you have to come up with a whole new strategy for each new acquisition? T- take us through that process.
1: Well, it, it depends a little bit. So, for, first and foremost, Barry, we start with a with a consumer, you know, and we try to map out in in every market what's kind of the total addressable, you know, population that we have. And then we try to segment them and try to define what brand and what beer styles or what beverage styles are ideal to, you know, address the needs of these consumers, right? So we even sometimes we even call this kind of a programmatic M&A approach because we start from the consumer lenses and then we go backwards and we define what is the perf- perfect portfolio that we need uh, in order to, uh, you know, to, to serve that. That consumer, and then the answer, you know, on kind of how to do the marketing, how to integrate the market, depends a lot on the on the type of consumer we are trying to to reach, right? So, to give an example, in 2016, we partner up with Camden Town Brewery, you know, in London, the you know, the most loved and and prestigious craft beer, uh, you know, in in the UK today. And and their consumers, you know, they are they are people with a high level of engagement, you know, with with the brewery, with the neighborhood, with the community, uh, and with beer. Uh, so we did very little advertising, and you know, one of our main tools, you know, for promoting the beer was basically the events uh, that we have on a weekly basis in the brewery, and then the brew pub that we that we had, you know. That's kind of, of course, is like super different from the way we launch uh, Bud Light Seltzer, right? Which is, again, you know, a lot of people are passionate about Bud Light, but now we are providing them with a Bud Light uh, that fulfills different needs in different occasions than the ones that they're used to, you know? So, again, I think the important thing here always is to start from, you know, from the consumer backwards and then define what brands do you need to create or partner up with and then what are the best uh, channels and, and ways to communicate with them.
0: Hmm, quite interesting. L- let me ask you a question about the company culture. ABN InBev has a reputation of being both challenging but breeding talent. And, and As an example, your predecessor as chief marketing officer is now the CEO of uh, food giant Kraft Heinz. What does this say about the corporate culture and and what does it mean as to where where you may end up running a company at some point in the future?
1: You know, we we have a culture that is very uh, is very entrepreneurial, you know, and 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 for me, it's hard to say that because I've been working here for 20 years. That was my first and and only job. But I realized that when we set up uh, uh, ZX Ventures, you know, back in 2015, because at the time, we were trying to hire a lot of entrepreneurial talent to run new ventures and, and run new ideas. And we had a big discussion on on whether we should have in ZX Ventures the same culture that we had in our, in our main company, or, you know, we should try to do something different. And talking, you know, to people that we brought from the outside, and, you know, when they Looked at our culture and understand our culture. They say this is an entrepreneurial culture. You know, there's like that's exactly what entrepreneurs are. They look for. So the main the main things that we have in our culture, you know, are about you know dreaming big, right? We like people, you know, that come here with big dreams and want to accomplish big things and want to have uh, you know a big impact. We love people that that like meritocracy, you know, which is the possibility of of growing professionally and financially at the pace of their of your effort and talent. And we like to bring people that have a sense of ownership. You know, that they treat the business as their own business and they have the autonomy, you know, like if they had their their own business, you know. So that those are the, the main things in the you know that we had in the in the culture. EasyX, eighty five percent of people that we brought to the company, they were external entrepreneurial talent and our turnover is super low. You know, so which means that, that I think there is a fit between you know the entrepreneurial culture and and, and our culture.
0: What what about pressure? Do you, do you feel the situation when your predecessor is running leaves to run a giant company? Does that does that add anything to the expectations uh, for what Pedro Erp is going to end up doing at ABN Bev?
1: Yeah, you know, again, you know, going going back to the to the culture, you know, that the pressure that we're having here is because we want to accomplish more, you know, as a team and, and as owners. You know, it's not a pressure that comes, you know, because the boarder wants us to do something or deliver something or the CEO wants to do something and deliver something, you know. We see ourselves. And again, I've been here for, you know, for for 20 years since this, this company uh, you know, was a small company. You know, back back in Brazil, and we've been behaving. You know, the same. We see ourselves as you know a group of of people that want to you know to to accomplish things and are ready to you know to to work as owners in order to in order to do that. So the pressure for me is much more, you know, given by by our our ambitions and what we want to get accomplished rather than by any external force. You know?
0: Quite fascinating. I know I only have you for a couple of more minutes, so let's jump to our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests, starting with, what are you streaming these days? Tell us your favorite Netflix or Amazon Prime show or any podcast that you're listening to.
1: All right. So, you know, I, Netflix, I haven't been watching too much Netflix uh, lately. You know, the last, the last one that I saw, and I I even missed I think the last episode was the last dance you know which is of course I mean fascinating and but po- po- podcast I you know I I listen a lot I mean I listen the the Bloomberg one I listen you know Jim uh, you know the CMO podcast is is really great the Scott Galloway prof G it's really good uh, you know I I try to exercise you know every morning and for me that's the uh, the ideal format in order to learn something and get, you know, getting formed while, while uh, trying to keep healthy. Huh.
0: Tell us about some of your mentors who helped shape your career in the world of marketing.
1: Yeah. You you know, Barry, kind of in the, I mean, when I joined the company, the company was kind of in, in a crazy rhythm, right? Because we are Growing a lot and expanding and doing a lot of things, so in a way, uh, you know, our training and our mentorship came more on a on a day to day basis, you know, and, and facing the challenges that we that we face, rather than proper kind of mentorship, you know, for someone that I would have like deep conversations and and get some le- some learnings from. Of course, I mean, to my You know, my, you know, before joining the company, of course, I mean, my parents in terms of work ethics and values, they were, you know, they were fundamental, you know. But after that, if, you know, in terms of kind of learning, you know, from the outside world, I'm a big fan of reading. You know, I think that the beauty of reading is that, you know, you can try to, to the extent possible, learn with other people's mistakes instead of with with your own uh, mistakes, So I've been, you know, I've been reading quite a lot since, uh, you know, since I left uh, college. So
0: so let's jump right into that question. This is everybody's favorite question because people are always looking for new things to read. Tell us some of your favorite books and tell us what you've been reading during the past six months.
1: Yeah, so uh, you know, I'm reading about mainly uh, mainly two things, right? One thing is about innovation and agility and things like that, you know, because again, that's that's kind of what we need to to do to grow and I'm reading about leadership, you know, to, to kind of trying to to get better as a, you know, as a leader. One book that I'm reading right now, uh, it's from a Bain consultant. It's called Agile Done Right. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people, to, a lot of companies talking about agile, you know, and, and things like that. Uh, and and there are a lot of pitfalls, you know, in the meaning. And he's 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 basically a, he's the the expert in the practicing in bank consulting. So there's a pretty interesting book I just read. I you know a, a good friend of mine, uh, David Kitter, uh, You know, the new Too Big book. You know, he explains a little bit how big companies are great at. At taking big things and making them bigger, and how entrepreneurs are great at kind of creating things from zero and making them big, and then how big companies can try to do both at the same time. So this is more on the on the innovation side. and then on the on the leadership side, you know i'm I'm kind of almost finishing the the lights out, which is the you know the story of G you know and what has been called happening with the company recently, which is a pretty interesting story.
0: Mm, I can, to say the least. So what sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad who was just beginning a career in either marketing, branding, or advertising?
1: Yeah, you know, going back to to the books, you know, I'm a big fan of uh, Jim Collins. You know, Jim Collins has been, you know, close to, you know, to our company for a long time. And we, we learned a lot from, you know, from him. And he has this principle, you know, and what makes company, companies great that I think it applies to people as well, you know. So he says that companies that are outstanding and they last are companies that, first, they love what they do. Second, they have the DNA to do that better than other people. And third, kind of, you know, uh, what they do, you know, it's uh, it's, it's kind of a sustainable Economic model, you know, or something that leads the company to a direction that it's that it's sustainable. You know, if if you use the analogy, I think with your, you know, your professional life for your life is, you know, try to to do what you love. You know, check on whether what you love, uh, you know, you have the genes or the capabilities to be to be better than than average, and then see if by doing that thing you know, you're going to, you're going to, you you are likely to go to a path that is going to make you a happy person in life, you know, so that's, that's kind of a framework that I think is useful to think about your career choice.
0: And our final question, what do you know about the world of marketing and advertising today that you wish you knew 20 years ago when you were first getting started?
1: I think, you know, when I started, you know, it was a lot about, you know, understanding the the theory behind it. You know, understanding about brand building, about channel planning, about all the all the theoretical underpinnings and you know, of marketing uh, and consumer understanding. And you know, today today I think uh, you know I, I realize that you know eighty percent it's about having a deep consumer obsession and a deep consumer understanding. You know the rest if you have that, the rest you can learn you know pretty quickly, but having this you know obsessive you know mindset on understanding what what your you know what what your consumers and what people need and how your products can can achieve that i think it's it's a big part of what marketers should do well you know the rest i think it's it's easier to to cope.
0: Thank you, Pedro, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Pedro Earp, Chief Marketing Officer at Beard Giant AB InBev. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of the previous 300 or so we've had over the past six years. You can find that at iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, Stitcher, wherever your finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Give us a review on Apple iTunes. Be sure and check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com slash opinions. Sign up for our daily reads at ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter at ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps us put together these conversations each and every week. Michael Boyle is my producer. Tim Harrow is my audio engineer. Atika Valbrunn is our project manager. Michael Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.